Section two of chapter twenty of a history of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sharon Chimuradan. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter twenty, section two. Before Middleton left England, he had collected the sense of all the leading compounders. They were of the opinion that there was one expedient which would reconcile contending factions at home, and lead to the speedy pacification of Europe. This expedient was that James should resign the crown in favour of the Prince of Wales, and that the Prince of Wales should be bred a Protestant. If, as was but too probable, his majesty should refuse to listen to this suggestion he must at least consent to put forth a declaration which might do away the unfavourable impression made by his declaration of the preceding spring a paper such as it was thought expedient that he should publish was carefully drawn up and after much discussion approved early in the year sixteen ninety three middleton having been put in full possession of the views of the principal english jacobites stole across the channel and made his appearance at the court of james there was at that court no want of slanderers and sneerers whose malignity was only the more dangerous because it wore a meek and sanctimonious air middleton found on his arrival that numerous lies fabricated by the priests who feared and hated him were already in circulation some non-compounders too had written from london that he was at heart a presbyterian and a republican he was however very graciously received and was appointed secretary of state conjointly with milford it very soon appeared that james was fully resolved never to resign the crown or to suffer the prince of wales to be bred a heretic and it long seemed doubtful whether any arguments or entreaties would induce him to sign the declaration which his friends in england had prepared it was indeed a document very different from any that had yet appeared under his great seal he was made to promise that he would grant a free pardon to all his subjects who should not oppose him after he should land in the island that as soon as he was restored he would call a parliament that he would confirm all such laws passed during the usurpation as the houses should tender to him for confirmation that he would waive his right to the chimney money that he would protect and defend the established church in the enjoyment of all her possessions and privileges that he would not again violate the test act that he would leave it to the legislature to define the extent of his dispensing power and that he would maintain the act of the settlement in ireland he struggled long and hard he pleaded his conscience could a son of the holy roman catholic and apostolic church bind himself to protect and defend heresy and to enforce a law which excluded true believers from office some of the ecclesiastics who swarmed in his household told him that he could not without sin give any such pledge as his undutiful subjects demanded on this point the opinion of middleton who was a protestant could be of no weight but middleton found an ally in one whom he regarded as a rival and an enemy melfort 
scared by the universal hatred of which he knew himself to be the object and afraid that he should be held accountable both in england and in france for his master's wrong-headedness submitted the case to several eminent doctors of the Sorbonne. These learned Cassiwits pronounced the declaration unobjectable in a religious point of view. The great Bossuet, Bishop of Mew, who was regarded by the Gallican Church as a father scarcely inferior in authority to Cyprian or Augustine, showed by powerful arguments, both theological and political, that the scruple which tormented James was precisely of that sort against which a much wiser king had given a caution in the words, Be not righteous overmuch. The authority of the French divines was supported by the authority of the French government. The language held in Versailles was so strong that James began to be alarmed. What if Lewis should take serious offence, should think his hospitality ungratefully requited, should conclude a peace with the usurpers, and should request his unfortunate guests to seek another asylum. It was necessary to submit. On the 17th of April, 1693, the declaration was signed and sealed. The concluding sentence was a prayer. We come to vindicate our own right and to establish the liberties of our people, and may God give us success in the prosecution of the one as we sincerely intend the confirmation of the other. The prayer was heard. The success of James was strictly proportioned to his sincerity. What his sincerity was, we know on the best evidence. Scarcely had he called on heaven to witness the truth of his professions, when he directed Melford to send a copy of the Declaration to Rome, with such explanations as might satisfy the Pope. Melford's letter ends thus. After all, the objection of this declaration is only to get us back to England. We shall fight the battle of the Catholics with much greater advantage at Whitehall than at St. Germain. Meanwhile, the document from which so much was expected had been dispatched to London. There it was printed at a secret press in the house of a Quaker, and there was among the Quakers a party, small in number, but zealous and active which had imbibed the politics of William Penn. To circulate such a work was a service of some danger, but agents were found. Several persons were taken up while distributing copies in the streets of the city. A hundred packets were stopped in one day at the post office on their way to the fleet. But, after a short time, the government wisely gave up the endeavour to suppress what could not be suppressed, and published the declaration at full length accompanied by a severe commentary. The commentary, however, was hardly needed. The declaration altogether failed to produce the effect which Middleton had anticipated. The truth is that his advice had not been asked till it mattered not what advice he gave. If James had put forth such a manifesto in January 1689, the throne would probably not have been declared vacant. If he had put forth such a manifesto when he was on the coast of Normandy, at the head of an army, he would have conciliated a large part of the nation, and he might possibly have been joined by a large part of the fleet. But both in 1689 and in 1692 he had held the language of an implacable tyrant, and it was now too late to affect tenderness of heart and reverence for the constitution of the realm. 
The contrast between the new declaration and the preceding declaration excited, not without reason, general suspicion and contempt. What confidence could be placed in the word of a prince so unstable, of a prince who veered from extreme to extreme? In 1692, nothing would satisfy him but the heads and quarters of hundreds of poor ploughmen and boatmen who had, several years before, taken some rustic liberties with him, at which his grandfather, Henry the Fourth would have had a hearty laugh. In 1693, the foulest and most ungrateful treasons were to be covered with oblivion. Caermarthen expressed the general sentiment. I do not, he said, understand all this. Last April I was to be hanged. This April I am to have a free pardon. I cannot imagine what I have done during the past year to deserve such goodness. The general opinion was that a snare was hidden under this unwanted clemency, this unwanted respect for the law. The declaration, it was said, was excellent, and so was the coronation oath. Everybody knew how King James had observed his coronation oath, and everybody might guess how he would observe his declaration. While grave men reasoned thus, the Whig jesters were not sparing of their pasquinades. Some of the non-compounders, meantime, uttered indignant murmurs. The king was in bad hands, in the hands of men who hated monarchy. His mercy was cruelty of the worst sort. The general pardon, which he had granted to his enemies, was, in truth, a general prescription of his friends. Hitherto, the judges appointed by the usurper had been under a restraint, imperfect indeed, yet not absolutely negatory. They had known that a day of reckoning might come, and had therefore in general dealt tenderly with the persecuted adherents of the rightful king. That restraint His Majesty had now taken away. He had told Holt and Treby that, till he should land in England, they might hang royalists without the smallest fear of being called to account. But by no class of people was the declaration read with so much disgust and indignation as by the native aristocracy of Ireland. This, then, was the reward of their loyalty. This was the faith of kings. When England had cast James out, when Scotland had rejected him, the Irish had been true to him, and he had, in return, solemnly given his sanction to a law which restored to them an immense domain of which they had been despoiled. Nothing that had happened since that time had diminished their claim to his favour. They had defended his cause to the last. They had fought for him long after he had deserted them. Many of them, when unable to contend longer against superior force, had followed him into banishment. And now it appeared that he was desirous to make peace with his deadliest enemies at the expense of his most faithful friends. There was much discontent in the Irish regiments which were dispersed through the Netherlands and along the frontiers of Germany and Italy. Even the Whigs allowed that, for once, the O's and Max were in the right, and asked triumphantly whether a prince who had broken his word to his devoted servants could be expected to keep it to his foes. While the declaration was the subject of general conversation in England, military operations commenced on the continent. The preparations of France had been such as amazed even those who estimated most highly her resources and the abilities of her rulers. 
both her agriculture and her commerce were suffering. The vineyards of Burgundy, the interminable cornfields of the Beuse, had failed to yield their increase. The looms of Lyon were silent, and the merchant ships were rotting in the harbour of Marseilles. Yet the monarchy presented to its numerous enemies a front more haughty and more menacing than ever. Lewis had determined not to make any advance toward a reconciliation with the new government of England, till the whole strength of his realm had been put forth in one more effort. A mighty effort in truth it was, but too exhausting to be repeated. He made an immense display of force at once on the Pyrenees, and on the Alps, on the Rhine, and on the Meuse, in the Atlantic, and in the Mediterranean. That nothing might be wanting which could excite the martial ardour of a nation eminently high-spirited, he instituted, a few days before he left his palace for the camp, a new military order of knighthood, and placed it under the protection of his own sainted ancestor and patron. The new cross of St. Louis shone on the breasts of the gentlemen who had been conspicuous in the trenches before Mons and Namur, and on the fields of Fleurus and Steinkirk and the sight raised a generous emulation among those who had still to win an honourable fame in arms. In the week in which this celebrated order began to exist, Middleton visited Versailles. A letter in which he gave his friends in England an account of his visit has come down to us. He was presented to Lewis, was most kindly received, and was overpowered by gratitude and admiration. Of all the wonders of the court, so Middleton wrote, its master was the greatest. The splendour of the great king's personal merit threw even the splendour of his fortunes into the shade. The language which his most Christian majesty held about English politics was, on the whole, highly satisfactory. Yet in one thing this accomplished prince and his able and experienced ministers were strangely mistaken. They were all possessed with the absurd notion that the Prince of Orange was a great man. No pains had been spared to undeceive them, but they were under an incurable delusion. They saw through a magnifying glass of such power that the leech appeared to them a leviathan. It ought to have occurred to Middleton that possibly the delusion might be in his own vision, and not in theirs. Lewis and the councillors who surrounded him were far indeed from loving William but they did not hate him with that mad hatred which raged in the breasts of his English enemies. Middleton was one of the wisest and most moderate of the Jacobites. Yet even Middleton's judgment was so much darkened by malice that, on this subject, he talked nonsense unworthy of his capacity. He, like the rest of his party, could see in the usurper nothing but what was odious and contemptible the heart of a fiend, the understanding and manners of a stupid, brutal, Dutch boor, who generally observed a sulky silence, and, when forced to speak, gave short, testy answers in bad English. The French statesman, on the other hand, judged of William's faculties from an intimate knowledge of the way in which he had, during twenty years, conducted affairs of the greatest moment and of the greatest difficulty. He had, ever since 1673, been playing against themselves a most complicated game of mixed chance and skill for an immense stake. They were proud, 
and with reason, of their own dexterity at that game. Yet they were conscious that in him they had found more than their match. At the commencement of the long contest every advantage had been on their side. They had at their absolute command all the resources of the greatest kingdom in Europe, and he was merely the servant of a commonwealth, of which the whole territory was inferior in extent to Normandy or Duin. A succession of generals and diplomatists of eminent ability had been opposed to him. A powerful faction in his native country had pertinaciously crossed his designs. He had undergone defeats in the field and defeats in the senate, but his wisdom and firmness had turned defeats into victories. Notwithstanding all that could be done to keep him down, his influence and fame had been almost constantly rising and spreading. The most important and arduous enterprise in the history of modern Europe had been planned and conducted to a prosperous termination by him alone. The most extensive coalition that the world had seen for ages had been formed by him, and would be instantly dissolved if his superintending care were withdrawn. He had gained two kingdoms by statecraft, and a third by conquest, and he was still maintaining himself in the possession of all three in spite of both foreign and domestic foes. That these things had been effected by a poor creature, a man of the most ordinary capacity, was an assertion which might easily find credence among the non-juring parsons who congregated at Sam's coffee-house, but which moved the laughter of the veteran politicians of Versailles. While Middleton was in vain trying to convince the French that William was a greatly overrated man, William, who did full justice to Middleton's merit, felt much uneasiness at learning that the court of Saint-Germain had called in the help of so able a counsellor. But this was only one of a thousand causes of anxiety which during that spring pressed on the king's mind. He was preparing for the opening of the campaign, imploring his allies to be early in the field, rousing the sluggish, haggling with the greedy, making up quarrels, adjusting points of precedence. He had to prevail on the cabinet of Vienna to send timely succours into Piedmont. He had to keep a vigilant eye on those northern potentates who were trying to form a third party in Europe. He had to act as tutor to the elector of Bavaria in the Netherlands. He had to provide for the defence of Liege, a matter which the authorities of Liege coolly declared to be not at all their business, but the business of England and Holland. He had to prevent the house of Brunswick-Wolfenbüttel from going to blows with the house of Brunswick-Lunenburg. He had to accommodate a dispute between the Prince of Baden and the Elector of Saxony, each of whom wished to be at the head of an army on the Rhine. And he had to manage the Landgrave of Hesse, who omitted to furnish his own contingent, and yet wanted to command the contingents furnished by other princes. And now the time for action had arrived. On the 18th of May, Louis left Versailles. Early in June he was under the walls of Namur. The princesses, who had accompanied him, held their court within the fortress. He took under his immediate command the army of Bufflers, which was encamped at Gembleau. Little more than a mile off lay the army of Luxembourg. The force collected in that neighbourhood under the French lilies did not amount to less than a hundred and twenty thousand men. 
Lewis had flattered himself that he should be able to repeat in 1693 the stratagem by which Mons had been taken in 1691 and Namur in 1692, and he had determined that either Liege or Brussels should be his prey. But William had this year been able to assemble in good time a force inferior indeed to that which was opposed to him, but still formidable. With this force he took his post near Louvain, on the road between the two threatened cities, and watched every movement of the enemy. Lewis was disappointed. He found that it would not be possible for him to gratify his vanity so safely and so easily as in the preceding two years, to sit down before a great town, to enter the gates in triumph, and to receive the keys, without exposing himself to any risk greater than that of a stag-hunt at Fontainebleau. Before he could lay siege, either to Liege or to Brussels, he must fight and win a battle. The chances were indeed greatly in his favour, for his army was more numerous, better officered, and better disciplined than that of the Allies. Luxembourg strongly advised him to march against William. The aristocracy of France anticipated with intrepid gaiety a bloody but glorious day, followed by a large distribution of the crosses of the new order. William himself was perfectly aware of his danger, and prepared to meet it with calm but mournful fortitude. Just at this conjuncture, Louis announced his intention to return instantly to Versailles, and to send the Dauphin and Bouffers, with part of the army which was assembled near Namur, to join Marshal Lorge, who commanded in the Palatinate. Luxembourg was thunderstruck. He expostulated boldly and earnestly. Never, he said, was such an opportunity thrown away. If His Majesty could march against the Prince of Orange, victory was almost certain. Could any advantage which it was possible to obtain on the Rhine be set against the advantage of a victory gained in the heart of Brabant over the principal army and the principal captain of the coalition? The marshal reasoned. He implored. He went on his knees, but in vain, and he quitted the royal presence in the deepest dejection. Lewis left the camp a week after he had joined it, and never afterwards made war in person. End of section two. Recording by Sharon Chimurudan of www.sharonmedia.net.